Hey, thanks for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can head to our website at RenewalChicago.com. I pray today that this message is a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. I'm excited about this morning. My throat's hurting a little bit. This fall is starting to get to me. Uh, it's hard to even think that it's fall already and the weather is going up and down and crazy, but my throat is crazy, so y'all bear with me this morning. But I'm excited about these next several weeks. As Pastor Luke alluded to last week, we are taking a break from our Sermon on the Mount series and we're going to be in a vision series for the next two weeks. See, we at Renewal, we desire to be a gospel-centered church that seeks the welfare of the city. We are a gospel-centered church that's a multi-ethnic church, multicultural church. We're diverse across many different lines. We want to preach Jesus, and we want to seek the good of the city. And what that means is that if God saw fit to remove us from the city, I always say this, is that the city would miss us. They would miss us because we were so for the city of Chicago. So we want to seek the welfare of the city. Now, that vision of ours is built upon three prongs, as I like to say, three initiatives. We want to renew, we want to rebuild, and we want to release people for the work of Jesus Christ in this city, but ultimately the world. Now, if you're new with us, every week or every year around this time of year, we start this vision series. We do this twice a year, whether it be now or in the beginning of the year, we walk through some of our vision. And the reason we do this, as Andy Stanley once said, is that vision leaks. Vision leaks, which means that we commonly forget why we're doing what we're doing. We commonly forget how we got to where we are. We commonly forget how we're going to do what we're going to do. Have y'all ever been to that place before? Like, why am I doing this? What's going on in my life? I mean, it's, it's, you get to this place where you're saying to yourself, what am I doing with my life? God, what are you trying to do with my life right now? Where are you trying to take me? Pastor Luke talked about this a bit last week about our life's mission, and he said that the Christian is to be dependent upon God. He said in our weakness, that's when we're strong because we're dependent on a big supreme God. So what I do every summer is, and when I'm away in the month of July, is I pray and I ask God over several weeks, say, God, where do you want to take us as a church? Where do you want us to go? Where, what, what vision are you giving us now for this fall and this next year? And as I kept praying, the words that kept coming to my mind were, it was two words. These words were, it was Christian maturity, and the second one was numbers. Now, here's why. It's as the people of God or the church walks with Christ and we grow in our individual walks and and we grow corporately you know what actually happens the church itself this the church grows not only in here but it affects the city too because hear me as Christ as we understand as Christians the call on our life that we understand that we're that, that we're known by God that we're loved by God, that we're approved by God, and we understand that we're one sent by God to share the hope of Christ to a world that needs to know him. Here's what happens. Inevitably, the church grows. Inevitably, the world is affected by Jesus because that Christian now that knows who they are in Christ is reeking with the goodness of Jesus. 
People can't help but be affected by your life because of how you know Jesus if you're walking with him and maturing. This causes the church to grow, but not only the church, but as I said, it leaks outside these buildings into the highways and the byways, as the people say, and folks come in contact with Jesus. I'm passionate about this because we live in a nation, family, that, and, and, and that truly needs to know Jesus. And, and we may claim to be a Christian nation, and I might mess your paradigm up with this, but y'all, we are not a Christian nation. We're not. Our nation... And many people may claim to be Christian, but there is a difference between cultural Christianity and biblical Christianity. See, sadly, true Christians are anomalies nowadays, which makes them, when you look at them, it makes them very intriguing and attractive. And what happens is that now that we see true Christians or people see true Christians, they start to ask questions. And the more people ask questions, the more Christians actually share their lives. And now what happens as you're sharing is workplaces look different. Homes start to look different. Dinner tables start to look different. Things around you start to look different. Communities start to change. Walls of division start to fall down because Christians are truly living as Jesus has called them to live. See, true Christianity, family, doesn't happen once a week on Sunday morning. It doesn't happen in your midweek Bible studies or your groups. That's not where it happens. It doesn't happen in your quiet time every morning. True Christianity happens when Christians, have their whole life is devoted solely to glorifying God with every ounce of them, every second, every hour of the day is devoted to glorifying God. That's true Christianity. It's because we understand the immeasurable riches and immeasurable grace and mercy that has been extended to us. That's when we mature. That's when we live as Christians. And family, that's my desire. That's my prayer for our church. Because when we understand what it means to truly live as Christians, not only will our church grow, but this city will be changed. Now, with all of this, if you haven't begun to ask this question, or if it's not already in your head, the question is, well, what does that look like? What's that practically look like? So how, how do I grow as a Christian? So over the next couple of weeks, that's what we're going to dive into. We're going to dive into this vision and what this looks like to mature as a Christian. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9, or verses 24 through 27. That's where we'll be this morning. Once you have it, go ahead and stand to your feet with me if you're able. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. If you got it, go ahead and say got it. it. Text reads, starting in verse 24, it says these words, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I love that. He says, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Very word of God, amen. 
Today I want to preach on this topic, the right aim. Can you say that with me? The right aim. Amen. Let's pray before we go any further. Father, thank you so much for this morning. God, I ask that you would be here in this place with us. Allow this word to fall afresh on your people. Remove me, God. Decrease me so that you may increase in this place. Father, have your way. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said together, amen, amen. You can be seated. Muhammad Ali, he's arguably the greatest boxer of all time. Anybody heard about Muhammad Ali? Well, if you've never heard of him, maybe you've heard one or two of his one-liners. Things that he says like, I, I done wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with an whale. I done handcuffed lightning, thrown lightning and thunder in jail. Only last week he says, I a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean I make medicine sick. <laughs> if you never heard that one, maybe you've heard the famous Drew Bundy Brown quote where he's talking about Muhammad Ali. He says, float like a butterfly, say it with me, sting like a bee. That's why they call me Muhammad Ali. He's one of the most emulated boxers of all time. Probably one of the only boxers that could knock you out going backwards. Muhammad Ali simply was one of the greatest, but Ali was not only known for his boxing, he was also known to be one of the most arrogant boxers of all time. Before the match, he was talking to you. In the match, he was talking to you. After match, he was still talking to you. This man utterly believed that he was untouchable. He even labeled himself the greatest. Howard Cosell, a journalist who Ali had a special friendship with over the many years as he was fighting, they were known to go back and forth with one another. They would get into fights and arguments all the time. And Ali would be thrown with these, these personal questions from Cosell and he would outwit him, he would outcharm him with his answers when he'd come back to him. Well, in one of those interviews toward the end of Ali's career, Cosell asked him, he said, is it true that you asked to fight another person? And I could just picture Ali's face when he's asking this question, just cocking his head. He said, I would never ask anybody to fight me. In fact, he says these words. He says, I am the Lord of the ring. Howard, it all comes around me. I know my value, I know who I am. They are nothing without Muhammad Ali. Now, as great as Muhammad Ali was, with all his arrogance, is there any wonder he died while in his fourth marriage? Renew, why am I talking about Muhammad Ali? Hear me, the Christian cannot grow the way God desires them to grow if they're always focused on their self. Now this is problematic because there, there's this, if you want to say, theology or ideology that, that plagues America, that's running rapid in America where whether it be in our marriages, our lives, with our kids, our jobs, everything tends to revolve around this idea of me. 
my timing, my convenience, which again, it causes a problem. It poses a problem to Christianity because the true Christian is focused on God's glory and God's glory alone. So in our passage today, Paul, he, he's trying to instruct these Christians here in, in, in Corinth on what their aim should truly be in life. So again, I want to talk about, I want to talk about two points. If you've got a pen and paper, you can write these down. Two points to how we'll grow as followers of Jesus. Number one, a Christian cannot be devoted to themselves. Number two, a Christian grows by having the right aim. One, a Christian cannot be devoted to themselves and a Christian, number two, it grows by, we grow by having the right aim. Now in the book of Corinthians, this is the letter that's written by Paul and he's writing to the church of Corinth because in it and among the saints there, there existed division. Basically, as people gained influence and they gained knowledge and they gained power in the church, they became more arrogant and division started to come about. So people would run around and you see this in chapter three saying, well, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. This is who we follow. And Paul is like, hold up, hold up. We're all on the same team. We all, we all follow the same God. We all worship the same God. I mean, it, it's like this. Look, I, and I don't want to offend anybody like this, but it's kind of like when people come up in the church to me and they're like, Pastor, are you preaching today? I'm like, I, I really want to say, does it matter if I'm preaching today? I mean, you don't like everybody else is preaching? See, and here's the reality. I'm not trying, I might be in your neighborhood right now because you may ask me this question. It's okay. I'm not trying to offend anybody with this. But here's the reality. I'm not going to put anybody on this stage that doesn't preach Jesus, that doesn't preach the Bible. And I'm not saying you can't have your preference, but hear me, family. Don't ever let your preference trump your conviction. That means that regardless of who's up here, they're preaching Jesus, they're preaching the Bible. That means we all can learn from them. Don't ever let your preference trump your conviction of what Jesus has done in your life and the fact that we can still learn. So all throughout this letter, Paul is urging the church to stop thinking about what's best for themselves. He's saying, stop thinking about how you can one-up somebody else, how you can be better than them. He says, let's run after Jesus together. He talks about marriage in chapter 7 and whether it's better to be married or single, which is something that's plaguing our generation. And Paul's like, y'all stop it. One is not better than the other. In fact, I'm not married. He wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, the best church planner, greatest church planner of all time, and he wasn't married. He's like, hey, neither one is better. There's advantages to both. He keeps going and he talks about gifts in chapters 12 through 14 because people were preferring one gift of the spirit over the other. Some were like, I speak in tongues. Well, I prophet. I'm a prophet. I, well, I lead in the church. And he's like, no. The Holy Spirit has given us all different gifts and we come together and we work together as one body, edifying the church, advancing, advancing the kingdom of God. Amen. One body. All throughout this letter, Paul is confronting the church and, and he's pushing them to value one another and work together for the advancement of the gospel. Hear me at the core of what he's getting at. Is he's saying the church cannot grow if we put ourselves at the center. Which brings us to this first point. He says in order for the church and the individuals to grow, a Christian cannot be devoted to themselves. Now we live in a culture where everything has been set up for us. Everything has been made to be revolve around this idea of me. And sadly, the church has followed suit. 
The church is no longer people working together. It's a cruise ship. You come in, you find your seat, and you leave after that. You get what you want, you're gone. We're not working together. Sadly, we follow suit to this whole idea of me. In society, you got social networks, and I'm not, ba- I'm not bashing social networks and everything, but here's the reality. We can have friends all over these social networks we never met. We, we can talk to people, our heads just scrolling down at the thing, looking at the, and we're like going through everything. Oh, I'll be your friend. I'm not, I don't like you. I'll be your friend. You, they ain't your friend. I mean, you're just going through it, and you're just scrolling, and you're looking along. You're, li- you're looking at everybody's life, and here's the reality. They're doing studies about this where people actually cannot have actual conversations now. They don't know how to talk to one another because they're so busy looking at their phones and paying attention to the internet. I mean, just scrolling, I mean, neck, I I feel like the neck is just like broken or something. I don't know if doctors are really ready for what's about to happen. They call it tech neck. Doctors are gonna be doing surgery, all kind of stuff on people's neck because they're just hanging down like this. We don't even look at people in their eyes anymore. If, the, if this problem runs rampant, it, it's stuff. You got fast food restaurants. We just ride through the drive-through, get my food, and we don't sit down and eat with anybody. Got phrases like "I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps." Like you got yourself there. Somebody had to make the boots. Some of y'all get that on your way home. And see, friends, the problem is that this ideology of me—it it fails us miserably. Because the satisfaction and the longing we want for is not and cannot be fully realized when the focus is only on what we can have or what we can get. So when things don't go our way, you know what happens? We're wrecked. Doesn't happen in our time and we're wrecked. God, what are you doing? Which begs the question, as we've been asking throughout the Sermon on the Mount, who are we truly devoted to? I mean, if you look at the context of the scripture, Paul, who has every right to be consumed with himself, is not. But instead, he's willing to forego his own personal freedom and satisfaction for others' sake. I mean, look at this context with me. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Look at this. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Look at these words, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Don't miss those words. Paul, who has every right to boast, who has every right to live for himself, he chooses not to. Don't miss what he's saying. He's letting us know that the Christian walk isn't about the Christian. But it's about living in such a way Others might see Jesus. In essence, this walk ain't about us. It's about Jesus and loving others. We won't grow individually and the church won't grow corporately if we're always thinking about ourselves. You know why? Because that's not Jesus' mandate. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. It's the famous verses. We always talk about them. He doesn't say to the disciples, hey, I'm about to die. 
I'm about to die. I taught you everything I know. So go on out there and live your best life now. He doesn't say that. He says, go out and make disciples. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, teaching them everything you've observed, all things that I've commanded to you. That's Jesus' mandate. He says, give everything away that I've given to you, which has nothing to do with the world revolving around me. It's about loving others and loving him. Which, hear me, is very problematic because it's countercultural to this culture of me. I love what Miss Hannah Smith, I, I've quoted her before, I love this. She says, she says this in her book, Everyday Religion. Me is the most exacting personage, requiring the best seat in the highest place for itself and feeling grievously wounded if its claim is not recognized. Most of the quarrels, look at this, among Christian workers arise from the clamoring of this gigantic me. How few of us understand the true secret of taking our seats in the lowest rooms. You see, the world, it hypes this idea up of me, which is totally contrary to Christianity. Individualism or this ideology of me, it, it, it gets us nowhere. It actually leaves us lonely and unsatisfied, always wanting more. Let me be honest, you ever been at this place where you just worried all the time? You just feel unsatisfied? You just tired, upset with the world, everything around you? You ever been there before? When things don't go your way, you ever get to this place? Y'all ain't gonna be honest with me this morning, huh? You ever been there before? You see, we, we talked about it a few weeks ago, but for the Christian, to have faith and worry, they don't mix. Like oil and water, it doesn't go together because when you worry and then you say you have faith, you're actually now doubting the supremacy of God. Like he doesn't hold this earth and everything in his hands as well as your life and your plans. You see, underneath that doubt that we have, is, is really, family, hear me, is a doubt that, that it, underneath that anxiety, that anxiety, the worry that we have, you, what we're really doing, don't miss this, I don't want y'all to miss it. What we're really doing is doubting that God is truly good. We're doubting that God can truly take care of us. So what we begin to do is we start worrying. And in our worry, we start controlling. Because we don't trust God. See, true devotion, if you look up this word biblically, what it says in the Greek, it means this. It means intentionally obscuring self-designation. Let me break that down. That means that you remove me from the picture. You're removing yourself from the picture because you're totally devoted to something or someone else. Devotion isn't transactional. It isn't about what we can get because we've been devoted. It's not, Jesus, I'm devoted to you, so therefore I should get this. It's not that. It, we're devoted to Jesus as Christians simply because of what he's done for us. You see, when I read about a God who hung the stars in the sky, created billions of galaxies, but then at the same time thought about little old me, when, when I think about that, when I think about God, in the highest, y'all, that, that elicits my worship. It drives me to a place where I want God, where I, I worship him. Because when I was out there doing things that I shouldn't have been doing, 
thinking about things that I shouldn't have been doing out there. He wasn't looking at me saying, God, I can't believe, I can't believe you, Derek Puckett. What's wrong with you? Shame on you. Why are you doing that? He's not looking at me doing that. He looked at me in compassion and out of love, he sends his son to die. You see, when I realize the goodness of God on my behalf, y'all, it drives me to worship. It humbles me because I didn't deserve salvation. Hence, I don't deserve to be here, but because he loved me and he saved me, I won't live for myself, but I'll live for Jesus. And as Paul says, in doing so, I'll do so hoping that I might save some. Family, our growth as Christians cannot be about us individually or this theology of me. That's not Christianity. It doesn't help the church. In fact, it prohibits the growth of the church. Just like the church of Corinth. I mean, me and our, our satisfaction is simply too low of a standard. And it leaves us dissatisfied and always wanting more. Me is simply the wrong aim. Which begs the question, well, what is the right aim? Paul helps us understand and answer this question. He keeps going in the text and he says in verse 24, look at it with me. He says, you know that in a race all the runners... They run. He says they run for a prize. They're going to receive a prize. They run so they may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body so that I may not be disqualified when I preach to others. He says this. Paul says this and. Family, Paul, in these words, he's saying, I know what lies ahead of me. I know what's ahead of me, and it's far greater than any treasure I can find on this earth. Hence, true Christian maturity is living in a way that you understand what is ahead of you, what is to come. What does that mean? Is that as you live and things happen around you or things happen to you, you don't allow those things to bog you down. You know why? Because you're keeping your eye on what's ahead of you. He's, Paul says, look, it means, it means I'm running after Jesus, knowing the prize of knowing him outweighs everything I can gain on this earth. Since in Christ, he offers eternity with him away from the madness of this world and all the problems of this world. Paul is saying that being known by Jesus and living with my aim, being on the hope that lies ahead, I will run with fervor. I will run in this life with Jesus, hoping that others might see him through me. Paul is saying nothing else matters. I can have everything in this life, but as he says in the text, all these things will perish. But the reward I receive from living as one called and saved by God through Jesus, nothing compares. Nothing compares to it. So he says, I will live my life actively disciplining my body, staying away from those things that bog me down and keeping my eyes on Jesus, knowing what's ahead. Did y'all notice I said the word active? That's not actually in the text. But if you read this word disciplining in its, actual, in its original text in Greek, when you look at it, it's, it's an active present tense verb. 
Why is that important? This means I knew that salvation was not a one-stop shop where I got Jesus and everything else is good after that. No, Paul said, I'm going to actively discipline my body. You know why? Because he knew sin and Satan were crouching at his door, knocking all the time. They're going to be there even after he accepts Jesus, coming after him. So he says, like a runner, I'm going to discipline my body so that I may not be disqualified. You don't just go outside and run a marathon. You train for that marathon. You get ready for that marathon. He said, no, I'm ready. I'm going to continually, actively discipline my body as I run this race, keeping my eye on Jesus. But there lies the problem. Because if we're honest, Christian nowadays, as I talked about in the beginning, if it's not in a Bible study or if it's not Sunday morning, we put our Christianity in the file cabinet of our life. I mean, let's be honest this morning. I just want us to be honest. Let, let God work in your heart. How many of us got distracted this week with something or someone we shouldn't have been with or shouldn't have had this thought and, and now we went physically someplace and did something or we went mentally someplace we shouldn't have been? How many of us been there this week? Let's be honest. I mean, how many of us have actually been fighting our thoughts with Scripture or have we actually succumbed to the thoughts and lived in them? Believing lies versus what God believes about us or says about us. But how many of us, instead of doing that thing we knew we shouldn't have been doing, saw it and ran to Jesus? I mean, let's be honest, because here's the thing. If your life is only about you, it's about me, then Christianity just becomes something culturally we do instead of actually sitting in our lives. You see, the Christian grows in maturity by actively running after Jesus, reading your Bible, meditating on Scripture, praying and forsaking those things that we're easily distracted by that draw our attention, forsaking those things. And here's the thing, when we do fall, being distracted by those things, indulging in them, you notice I said when we do, because we will fail, we will mess up. When we do go to that place, we constantly, we make haste running back to Jesus, believing in Jesus, and repenting of the things that we were indulging in. And what I mean by that is we see that thing, and instead of turning to it, we actively turn towards God. We actively turn towards Jesus, believing what he did for us, and believing the gospel. Paul is saying, I will live my life actively keeping my eyes on Jesus. He's saying that glorifying God in this life is his aim and it's not for his own good. Notice, he does this so that others can see Jesus. But I know some of us, there's a disconnect there because you're probably thinking, Paul is an apostle, Pastor D. What about regular people? What about me? How do I live my life for Jesus? Well, true story, and I'm going to end with this. Some of you have probably seen the movie. It's an old movie, Chariots of Fire. But in 1924, Eric Lydell, he would do something that would shock the world. See, Eric was one of the fastest men on this planet. 
He had this signature running style where he'd kick his head back in the air and he'd run, flailing his arms. If you know anything about track, you didn't run like that. Your head is down and you, you're, you're ducked down and your hands are by your side. But he ran like that and he was one of the fastest men to ever run the 100 meter dash. But he wasn't just known for his running style. He was known because he was a man that was truly devoted to Jesus. So in 1924 in the Olympics, Eric was scheduled to run his best race. The race that he, everybody thought he would win the gold in. It was pretty much a given for him, the 100 meter dash. But the problem with the 100 meter dash is that it fell on a Sunday. So for Eric, Sunday was the Sabbath day. It's a Sabbath day. He said that if I, if I run on this day, then I'm breaking one of the Ten Commandments where it says rest. Remember the Sabbath. And he said, because if I run now, I'm working. So Eric, without a flinch, said he could not run the race. An uproar occurred, and many tried to get him to run the race. The Olympic Committee even told him he would be able to go to church, and then afterwards, we'd hold off till you get here, we'll run the race then. One guy got so frustrated, he told Eric, he said, look, the continental, I don't know where he got this from. He says, the continental Sabbath day ends at noon. <laughs> Eric looked at him and smiled and said, well, mine lasts all day. <laughs> well, Sunday comes around, July 6, 1924, the day of the race. Eric went to church. Afterwards, he went and he sat in the stands and he watched the race that he should have won. I can't imagine the feelings and the thoughts that he was having as he watched the race, but no matter what he was thinking, the devotion that he had to God, his Christian faith, his commitment to God was greater. And the next week he'd run the 200 meter and he'd get the bronze in that, then he'd run the 400 meter, a race that he hadn't really even trained for and he'd win the gold. Now, although he won these races, he would be remembered by his faith and a man that stood for Jesus when everybody else wanted him to do something else. His daughter would remember him this way. She'd say these words. She says, the goal, she says, for the 400 meters, talking about that race, was lovely, but not the most important thing. I truly believe that had he run on Sunday and sold out his principles, he would not have won. He would not have had that fire. He was running for God. Eric gave up the one thing he worked so hard for, that he trained for, in order to honor God. His relationship with God was worth far more than a medal. And the question we must answer this morning is how much is our relationship with God worth? Are we living our life just simply for ourselves or are we living it for Jesus where others can see him through us? What's our aim in our lives? Are we living like Muhammad Ali? Or are we living like Eric Liddell? See, the mature Christian, hear me family, lives with the aim to glorify God in everything. Family, my desire and my prayer for the church is that we would live each day with Jesus on our minds, 
I pray that as we mature, we mature in our walks by keeping our eyes on Jesus, walking by faith in the midst of a world that's so infatuated with ourselves, God, that we would just see Jesus in everything we do, being devoted to him like Eric, running without a flinch, saying, I'm not going to do that because I know what God has called me to. See, when we truly live for Jesus, as Paul is urging the church to do right here in this text, you know what happens to the church? It inevitably grows because we're living for God's will and not our own. Renewal, let's keep our eye on Jesus, knowing what lies ahead, not the here and now, but what lies ahead. I say this all the time, and I really mean it. God is not done yet. He's still in the business of saving people. He's still in the business of working in our hearts. He's still in the business of taking you someplace you could never imagine in your life. He's still working. He's not done yet. And this is just the beginning of what he has in store for renewal. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. You're a good God. We thank you for your church. We thank you for the word of God that pricks our hearts and draws us closer to you, but at the same time, it sharpens us, Lord Jesus, conforms us and makes us more into the image you created us to look more like your son, look more like your daughter. Lord, I pray that right now, as I know it may be a struggle day in and day out for us to keep our eye on you, Lord, that we would just do that, that we'd run hard with you. We're after you, God. There's folks in here that don't know you that are saying, I don't know what that looks like. I want to run after Jesus, but I'm struggling in my walk right now. I'm struggling in faith. I'm having questions. God, I pray that you would just intercede in their hearts right now, that you would work and you would draw them to you and just say, God, and they would just say right now, I need you. God, we know you're not done. We thank you for all that you've done, and we thank you for what you're going to do. And we'll keep our eyes on you and what lies ahead until we reach heaven with you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you and pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast today. I pray that it was a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. I look to see you at one of our services at 930 or 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Take care. God bless you.